You are now listening to The Big Data Beard. This is our podcast where we explore the trends, technology, and talented people making big data a big deal. So welcome everyone to another podcast. Uh, This is Aaron Banks. I'm joined by Corey Mitten, and we have uh, a guest on that I've had multiple conversations with regarding security. And while we were talking about the wonderful topic of security, we found out that uh, he has a wealth of information regarding artificial intelligence. And I thought this would be a really great opportunity to just get him on a podcast and just talk about all the good stuff about it, the issues or the concerns or all those questions of those really um, in-depth kind of understanding or thoughts with regard to artificial intelligence. So I just want to introduce you to Zulfikar Ram. Ramzan, I totally butchered that, so you can totally um, <laughs> fix me on that. But I'm going to call him... Z- no, you, you did much yeah. better than okay. most. <laughs> really? Jeez. I, I, mean, I apologize. Um, and anyway, so um, Zuli, which is, that's what we call him at work, is actually the CTO at RSA. So Zuli, why don't you give us a little bit of background, um, specifically with regard to artificial intelligence? Yeah, like your background. Sure. So, you know, I, I've been kind of... Oh yeah, my, my background. So sure, I've been, I've been kind of very fortunate in that, um, you know, I've had a chance to work on on building AI systems, specifically around cybersecurity. Um, I got interested in AI actually now about twenty plus years ago. I had the opportunity to do some research in machine learning, and this was before machine learning was a hot thing, right? So this was kind of in the in the early days, uh, before people really could figure out the potential and, and where it could take us. And it's been a phenomenal experience to, to build real world systems that leverage these techniques. Uh, to try to protect people from the latest and greatest threats that are out there, uh, you know what I'm really surprised by when I when I hear about machine learning and AI nowadays is is all the the hype around how how new it seems. But the reality is that you know most of us who've been in this industry for a long time have have been applying these techniques for quite a while and have you know had a chance to, to learn sometimes the hard way what works and what doesn't work. And so I'm kind of excited to share you know some of those perspectives over the course of the podcast. Which is great, right? That's one of the main reasons why I wanted you on because you've been in it for like years, right? Even the Big Data Beard, we did a Coursera course with Andrew Andrew Ang, and I was talking to you about that. And I think you actually went to school with him, right? Or you knew? That's right. So actually, Andrew and I um, were, no, we were first years together at MIT. Um, This was when he uh, started graduate school. Uh, Then he actually ended up leaving MIT after his first year and and going to Berkeley because his advisor uh, had moved there. And, and so typically when, when you have a good advisor, you tend to move with your advisor uh, to their school. So, um, you know, I remember seeing Andrew, you know, on the streets of uh, on Telegraph Street in Berkeley um, back in, in the late 90s. That's probably the last time I had a chance to talk to him at length. Uh, but we were, you know, kind of cut our teeth together at MIT that first year and a phenomenal person, phenomenal wealth of knowledge in the space. And it's exciting to see all the work he's done and how he's really brought some of these ideas to the masses with his uh, great Coursera course and his his YouTube lectures from Stanford. Yeah, so how does somebody like you who, you know, has this, has been in this for so long, been talking about it and, you know, laughing at us that we're just kind of starting these conversations, how did you get involved in security? <laughs> so actually for me, you know, security was kind of what I started with. Um, you know, I, I was uh, years ago in, in high school, I remember reading a book called The Cuckoo's Egg by Cliff Stoll. And, uh, you know, at that right around right the time, we actually had a... Um, a system that we were given in our high school to use that was internet connected. And that was an unusual thing, you know, back then. And, and the system was actually being administered by uh, some of the high school teachers. 
uh, which meant that there were security holes everywhere and it was completely uh, not being administered correctly um, because no one really knew what they were doing. And so for, you know, a bunch of high school seniors and juniors to kind of play around with these systems and, and get a chance to learn how they work, uh, it was a phenomenal opportunity to learn, you know, what would work in these systems, how to bypass various aspects of, of what was going on. Uh, and then I remember, you know, an undergrad, what really kind of continued my interest is uh, uh, RSA, which is where I work now, um, had issued this challenge called the RSA 129 challenge. And it was really a, a, a challenge of whether you could factor this 129 digit number. And this was a number that would have been essentially published in, in 1977 with the original RSA paper. And it took uh, decades before people were able to factor it. And what they use is the power of the entire internet in a distributed fashion to, to factor this number. And it created a lot of interest among you know people who were interested in cybersecurity at that time and, and who were interested in math. And it just started sparked a love for me in, in, in this area. And a number of years later, I had the chance to work under Ron Rivest um, at MIT. He was uh, the R and RSA. And, and Ron's background, interestingly enough, has both a machine learning component to it as well as a cryptography component. He's actually worked at the intersection of both fields uh, for a while. And he's, as an undergrad, I was also kind of working on machine learning. And MIT got this huge grant for, uh, for cryptography that year uh, when I was a grad student from DARPA. And uh, I figured, you know, I'm going to follow the money. And if I knew that there's a big grant waiting, uh, it's going to be easy to do research and, and getting a chance to work with Ron was amazing. And so, you know, you kind of fast forward, uh, I, I got my kind of teeth cut early on in the academic world and then worked for a number of years at, at various big companies and startups and uh, got a chance to try to take some of these ideas from theory and put them into practice. Yeah, that's great. And I just, so I think that's great that you've been able to bring those like two worlds together, but I always kind of like ask the question, as somebody, you know, who's been in sales, like, what are some of the questions that you feel that customers need to understand with regard to artificial uh, intelligence and security? Like, is there anything that, that you think that they should be aware of or something along those lines that kind of like pops up uh, for you that we should, you know, customers should be aware of? Yeah, no, that's, that's a wonderful question, Aaron. I think, you know, when you come down to it, uh, people often get caught up in, in the hype, right? They say, you know, it's your neural network bigger than my neural network, and, and they get caught up in the most arcane aspects of, of AI. But the reality is that uh, more often than not, what matters more than anything else is your data set. So if you're applying, let's say, machine learning to a problem, what matters the most is do you have good data to work with? If you have got good data, you can make good inferences. If you don't have good data, then it, you know, good luck. Um, and so machine learning is very much garbage in, garbage out, or, or put differently, it's, it's like trying to make good wine from bad grapes. And so what I really tell people to think about is, number one, ask yourself whether or not you're generating the right kinds of data or you have access to the right kinds of data that can help you with making good machine learning inferences. And if you don't, then um, it doesn't matter how fancy the math is later on, you're not going to be able to do something meaningful with it. So that, that's the first question to really ask. The second question to really think about is that level of domain expertise. Are you talking about uh, an organization that understands the domain to which machine learning or AI is being applied? And if so, can they leverage that domain expertise with those good data sets to actually figure out what it is that's important in, in those data sets? Uh, and then finally, once you've got the domain expertise and the good data, uh, then you can figure out which classifier you want to use, whether you want to use a neural network or a decision tree or naive Bayes or one of a host of other things. And, and it turns out that if you have really good data to begin with and good domain expertise that can help you look at the right features in that data, then it almost doesn't matter which classifier you have at the end. All the sort of well-known commercial classifiers tend to perform within a small percent or maybe a fraction of a percent of each other at the end of the day. And so I think that we often get that backwards. We get so caught up in the 
classifier and we ignore the features, the domain expertise, and even more so we ignore the data. And I think that's what happens in the real world. We, we often get caught up and, and think about the wrong things in the wrong order. Yeah. So, so consistently we hear something very similar to what you just outlined, which is good data, right? Domain expertise and, you know, then popular tool sets and improve the, you know, we're seeing massive improvements in the, the implementation and the ease at which we can implement these, you know, classifier systems or the large scale math systems at scale. But I'm curious. So that's consistent that we're hearing, but I don't, I don't feel like there's a, a consistent adoption of artificial intelligence in the enterprise. So I'm curious what your what your take is on the current state of, of AI in the enterprise. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you wholeheartedly. I think we're in a situation where people have recognized there's a lot of promise in AI and, and that it could help with making decisions in enterprise environments, whether they're security decisions or other kinds of decisions. Uh, and then the real key comes down to, can you start to apply AI correctly? Can you actually build an organization that can leverage AI techniques properly. And that requires a multifaceted approach. It's not just about having the best libraries and, and the right access to AI algorithms. It's about having the people and process that lie underneath that, the people who understand how to make those algorithms a reality, how to actually look at data in the right way and, and, and know what to look for. Um, I think we have a case nowadays where you have a lot of organizations that treat AI like a black box and they think of it as like, magic. It's it's not really magic by any stretch of the imagination. And if you think of it as a black box, there's a good chance you may be misusing it and the results are, are not going to be what you expect them to be, or they're not going to be the kinds of results that can help you make meaningful inferences later on. Yeah. It's, it's funny you say black box and, and meaningful inferences. I think some of the concern that we hear in the market is that there's a lot of fear uh, surrounding AI. There's a lot of fear mongering going on by, by certain parts of uh, technologists and uh, civil rights organizations and others. Yeah, Do you think that that, that fear of AI is, is well-founded? Yeah, there's sort of, the, sort of like the Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking versus uh, Mark Zuckerberg debates, uh, you know, between, you know, the future implications of AI. Are we going to have like a Skynet or a HAL or, or you know, what the, the right pop culture reference is? You know, and right now, you know, I, I think you know, my bigger fear is not so much that um, we go down that path and end up in a situation where, you know, the, the machines take over the world. You know, my bigger fear is that when we create complex systems that people don't understand, uh, failures in those kinds of systems are, are not only inevitable, but the failures can have these dramatic ripple effects. Uh, when you have a complex interconnected system, a small failure in one part of the system can have dramatic consequences in other parts of the system. And in general, when we think about cybersecurity in that context, you know, cybersecurity tends to be antithetical to complexity. More complex systems are harder to secure and safeguard. And I think that's something that I worry about even more is this world where you have a lot of folks out there who are implementing these techniques, but who don't understand how they work and, and it can cause a whole set of issues. And if you go back, you know, think about uh, not that long ago, the financial crisis, right? We're talking about now we're about a decade or so out and, and maybe about 15 years before the first, you know, crack started to happen in, in the financial infrastructure around that crisis. And that crisis was, you know, really of a similar ilk in that you had a lot of folks using some fairly sophisticated mathematical techniques, uh, many of which were based on, on statistics and making inferences. And you had a good number of them who were using these techniques without understanding the underlying assumptions that would make them work properly. And so that is something we have to move away from. Now, if you ask the quants who really understood the math 15, 20 years ago, they, they knew that there were issues with those models. They knew that there were certain fundamental assumptions those models were making that would enable them to essentially try to work in the real world. But they also recognized that those models were brittle and, and could be manipulated or could have some unforeseen results in the right set of circumstances. 
it's the people who attempt to use these models later on who don't understand the math and who don't understand the implications that I think can cause a lot of problems by by treating these things as black boxes. And so in, in many ways, maybe the fear I have is, is less about the the AI apocalypse and more about the situation like we had with the financial industry a decade ago. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I, I have a huge fear of bias getting into you know artificial intelligence. And I was reading some report that said, I believe... Um, it happened like in August, the end of August of 2018, where California signed a bill, I think it was um, not exactly sure what bill number it was, but specifically trying to address that issue, right? Because they were feeling that race was being um, used in making an understanding of if somebody got bail or how long their sentences was going to be or making these decisions, and that everything was being based from a, a machine perspective and that there were no human kind of interactions. Um, and don't quote me on that, but it seems like that was specifically what they're trying to address. And is regulation an easy way of trying to deal with biases that are coming into artificial intelligence? Or do you think there's other ways that we can be dealing with this? So, you know, that's, that's a, you know, when I think about regulation in general, I think that regulation, the challenge is that it, it's often ends up being kind of one size fits all, where you try to come up with a single piece of regulatory guidance that applies to a whole host of scenarios and I think trying to regulate something like AI too early uh, can be dangerous because uh, it's such a rapidly evolving field. I mean, we've seen so much progress in the field over the last few years, and we're going to continue to see this incredible rate, perhaps even unsettling rate of progress in the years to come. Um, given a field that's so dynamic, I think trying to regulate it too early is in many ways going to be doomed to failure. I think we've got to think very carefully about maybe providing some high-level guidance rather than some low-level regulation at this point. Uh, down the line, I think as the field matures more and as you start to see uh, more and more pra- best practices emerge, we may want to think about how to regulate. But I think to your earlier point, Aaron, the idea that um, you know AI can sometimes take on certain biases of, of, of human beings and of, of data, you know, that's number one, a very real concern because ultimately the way these things learn is they're either programmed by humans or they are... Uh, program with data that's gathered by humans. And uh, and there are biases in, in those kinds of data. Now, the, on the flip side, you could also argue that um, you know AI is unemotional. So when it makes a decision, it's not going to have some of the same emotional tendencies as a human being in, in that same realm. And so if you look at a game like chess, um, there's been tremendous progress in in chess playing programs. I remember back in, in the kind of early 90s or even, even the late 80s, um, the idea of a, a chess program beating a strong human was unfathomable. I mean, the idea of a world champion losing to a, a chess playing computer uh, was was not something people considered. And and really, in that realm, uh, what they did is they just applied more and more computational power to the problem, and that's where the real advance was. But ultimately, if you think about a chess playing computer, you know, it's got it's got no emotion, no biases, no psychological weaknesses, right? It, it can just play the right move, move after move. Um, whereas humans get tired, you know, they 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 get cranky, they they have momentary lapses of of, of good judgment, uh, and so. I can I can see this playing out in, in two different ways. I can see certain situations where, you know, on, on very specific decisions, you might get some really awkward results from an AI program. On the other hand, I think in the vast majority of cases, you will tend to get better and more high fidelity results. And so I think we have to be very cautious of not taking one bad example and then throwing out the entire technology when the rest of the time it actually performs quite well. But do you think that that, you know, on that note, which is interesting, you know, you're definitely taking chess, which your point is, obviously, there's no emotion tied to it. But obviously, with regard to someone's, you know, 
bail or jail sentence or something that's certainly more are there do you think there are any how do I say like bad use cases for artificial intelligence where you think that artificial intelligence isn't quite ready to be used yet? Uh, you know, I think that, uh, so I'll put it this way. I think any technology, um, if overused can become dangerous in the sense that it, it may not be, uh, it may not be applicable for, for the most arcane use cases in, in certain scenarios. So let's say for example, in cybersecurity, you know, we are dealing with, with sentient adversaries who are constantly adapting and morphing their techniques and AI and even machine learning, which is really a subdiscipline of AI, it was not designed to deal with adversarial scenarios. Machine learning, for example, was predicated on learning from data with the assumption being that the data was was legit. And if, if you have somebody maybe who's out there poisoning data or was purposely trying to manipulate the way you're going to make inferences, then there's a good chance that you know you may be lulled into a false sense of security about how well your your, your machine learning algorithm performs, and it may not be able to, to hold up to that in, in the real world. Now, now, having said that, I think that um, you know we have, we have to take a more balanced view. That if if you look at any technology on its own, uh, it has to potentially be both abused and misused, and and so we have to be able to understand you know when those cases occur. I still think, on the whole, um, AI helps matters. For example, you know, in cybersecurity, even though we can't catch some of these very arcane and complex and and highly uh, you know manipulated threats using AI. We can still catch a lot of low-hanging fruit that's been otherwise missed. And so my fundamental belief is that AI will move the needle. It may not move the needle as much as maybe a marketing firm who, who does AI tries to make you believe, but I think at the same time, we have to not you know, discard a technology on its own. And you know, in that vein, look at another example, like, like the self-driving car, right? I mean, there have been examples where, where self-driving cars have, have done you know, some bad things, right? They haven't quite driven the way people expect. But yet, if you look at the overall stats, they still are safer net net compared to, um, you know, human driven cars. Yeah, but the human driven cars, though, they create less traffic. I've been been doing quite a bit of study on this uh, autonomous vehicle thing, and you know, these driving services like Uber and and uh, Lyft have actually increased traffic in cities, not decreased it. And if you start to think about you know self driving cars where you don't even have to leave your house, imagine how many cars I could put on the road to go run errands for me. So I, what I'm curious about in this, to, to your point earlier about this adversarial AI, that that to me feels like an area where as a CTO of a security company, there has to be like some pretty, either it's keeping you up at night or, or it's the, one of the areas of focus for you. What are you seeing in terms of the threat matrix kind of shifting to where the the bad actors are actually using this technology against us? Yeah, this, this question comes up frequently. You know, at this stage, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but the, the, we haven't really seen a ton of activity with threat actors trying to leverage AI on their own uh, for, for some of the threats we deal with, let's say, in, in enterprise networks and enterprise environments. And I think it's primarily because they don't need to, right? So typically, threat actors are driven by necessity. And if they can make a simple threat work or they can get a simple attack to work, they're going to do that. They're not going to appeal to more sophisticated techniques. And today, in cybersecurity, most people are still fooled by by spear phishing messages. Uh, most breaches occur because of a well-known, well-established vulnerability that didn't go patched for a while. So it's not like we're seeing these sort of Ocean's Eleven type complex heists yet in cybersecurity that might leverage AI techniques. Now, what's interesting is when you go to the sort of broader community, 
there are some early instances of where AI is being used for nefarious purposes. So for example, imagine like some of these Twitter bots that are you know able to respond to tweets and and, and manipulate social media messages. Uh, certainly those have, have massive political implications and implications for people who are who are trying to get a certain narrative across to the world. So that's certainly one area where we see some AI being used. Uh, a lot of spammers have been using AI techniques to solve those captcha puzzles. You know, when, when you create a new account somewhere and you're given this set of characters to type in and, and those characters are like, you know, very obscure looking and, and, and the theory of, of those of those captures is that it's supposed to be something that a human can do easily, but a computer has trouble with. And that was certainly the case when these captures first came out now a couple of decades or maybe even a decade or so ago. But um, when you look at the world today, these captures have not gotten so obscure and so hard to solve that in fact, computers are better at solving the captures than humans are. And so we're seeing a lot of spammers who want to create accounts in mass leverage uh, basic AI techniques for uh, areas like machine vision and and uh, handwriting recognition and, and character recognition and other areas to do and, and to solve these CAPTCHAs to create accounts. So there definitely are some early instances where AI is being used for nefarious purposes. But at this point, I think we're still you know not seeing widespread use of this technology yet. On the other hand, I think when we start seeing widespread use, I would say that I will declare partly a victory because that means we force attackers to get to the point where they have to apply very sophisticated techniques to make their attacks work. And I think if we get to that stage, um, that means we've dealt with a lot of the basic issues in cybersecurity. I don't think it's going to happen for quite some time, but I would say that that would be a good problem to have for us. So on that note, where, like, how do you think in the future with regard to security, how AI could be used a little bit better? Because I still feel like we're at this kind of crossroads, right? And you've been in this world for so long um, what do you think are some of the advantages or how we can use it to our benefit down the road? Like as we get more data, as we understand more, as we learn a lot across those paths? Yes, I think you know, that when I look back and, and kind of just starting with the history and kind of where we're going, historically, certainly cybersecurity and AI have had this really pronounced intersection. So if you look at, for example, a lot of anti-spam filters, they were used and they predicate themselves on, on AI techniques. If you look at the online fraud world, something that certainly RSA knows quite well, um, a lot of the... Uh, major banks in the world, for example, use technology that leverages AI for being able to detect online fraud. If you look at even malicious software, we've been using AI to detect malicious software now for at least a decade uh, in actual production environments. Uh, if you look at things like network security and being able to analyze network traffic, we've been able to make tremendous use of AI in those realms as well. And so I think the future for us, to me, it, it first has to rely on, on us being able to, number one, uh, be able to gather the right kinds of data. So really focusing on visibility as part of the puzzle. That is, I think, a new thing in the cybersecurity industry in terms of, of the way people think. If you go back 15 or 20 years ago, cybersecurity is really predicated on a preventative mindset. Can I prevent threats from getting in the front door? The reality is that Threat actors are already well past that point. It's not difficult for a threat actor to get past the front door. Uh, the real goal becomes once they get into the front door, can you keep them from achieving their ultimate objective, which is to breach data or to wreak havoc or to cause some some harm to you? And if I make make an analogy, imagine for example you're trying to protect a bank. You know, I could build a strong front door to my bank, and that might be a way to keep you know bank robbers out. But of course, at some point, my bank opens for business, and the bank robber can walk in the front door. But the bank robber's goal is not to get in the front door of the bank. The bank robber's goal is to get the money that's in the vault. In much the same way, when you have threat actors, their goal is not to infiltrate your system for its own sake. Their goal is to achieve some other benefit, whether it's stealing your data or taking down that system and, and causing you problems or something of that nature. And so I think we're in a world now where people are trying to gather more visibility, trying to understand what's happening on their networks. 
at a continuous level. And that will bode well for AI systems. As we gather more data about what's happening on networks, we'll be in a better position to analyze that data and make meaningful inferences. The other avenue that I see a lot of value in is being able to gather data from multiple sources and truly having a multidimensional view. So today, for example, people often focus on data that's on your network. But if I can juxtapose network data with endpoint data and start tying them together, that'll, I think, take us quite a, quite a ways. Um, the last avenue where I think there's a lot of opportunity for, for AI is in the broader question of risk management. Uh, now, risk is an overloaded term. I think it's been abused by, by many folks, but certainly if you ask somebody you know, in a financial institution or an actuary, they've got a well-defined notion of risk. And that notion tends to include both the likelihood that something bad can happen as well as the expected loss if that event were to occur. Uh, and for us, when we think about risk in a cybersecurity context, being able to manage and mitigate risk involves making predictive inference, being able to make inferences about what could go wrong and putting compensating controls around that. And that problem of inference is certainly one that is really well suited to AI techniques. So my hope is that we'll be able to apply AI more broadly in, in the realm of risk uh, and risk management. And I think we're, we're scratching the surface on what we can do there. But I think if we can start to think about cybersecurity and economic terms and use AI to help us reason about those economics, that will help everybody down the line. We've we've covered a, a lot of these uh, intersections of technology where you know AI and security are are tied, right? And you talked about early on cryptography and AI are connected. There's another really hyped technology that I'm curious to get your perspective on on blockchain and does and does blockchain's uh, technology and use have a a big impact on AI and the implementations or the value of AI improving in the near future? Yeah, so blockchain is certainly an area that, you know, given I have a PhD in cryptography is an area that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And, and, and I'll put it this way. My stance on blockchain is is maybe contrarian to what you would typically hear, but it's actually the typical stance of people who have the math background, which is that I don't believe in its current incarnation that there are any um, applications of blockchain outside of cryptocurrencies that cannot be more readily addressed or more easily addressed through traditional mechanisms. And that is a pretty kind of bold statement, but let me kind of dissect that a little bit more. Uh, when you think about it, uh, for cryptocurrencies, I think blockchain is a very suitable technology. And of course, when you look back at the history of, of blockchain, it was first introduced in the context of Bitcoin, and it was really a technology that was developed to make Bitcoin work. And so it's really well suited for that particular type of application and, and applications that are maybe similar enough to it, like cryptocurrencies and, and you know some of the smart contract work around that. But when you take a step back and think about whether or not blockchain can be used in other settings, you know, I, I always ask myself some basic questions. Like, for example, you know, do you, it's not so much a question of whether you can use a blockchain to solve the problem. The real question I ask is, is should you be using a blockchain to solve a problem? You know, for example, in many cases, I've seen problems that could just as easily be solved by a database. Um, and you don't need sort of the, the heavy mechanics of a blockchain to solve that problem. Or that problem could be solved by digital signing or by timestamping all techniques that have been around for quite a while and that have been very, very well studied. Uh, my big fear with blockchain is you've got a lot of people out there who, again, are just trying to get caught in the hype. Uh, they look for ways to apply blockchain without fundamentally asking if it's the right technology for solving a particular problem. Uh, now, having said that, I think there's also some other concerns that keep me up at night with respect to blockchain. You know, One of them is that uh, even though there are certain security properties you kind of get uh, when you when you implement blockchain, the reality is that you got to implement blockchain on top of a secure infrastructure in the first place. If you don't have the right secure foundations, then it doesn't matter how much cryptography or whatever you do on top, you're kind of sitting on a house of cards. And so I caution people to really think about 
You know, how do I ensure that you've got the right underlying infrastructure? You know, how do you uh, ensure that you've made the right set of assumptions about how blockchain works? Uh, blockchain is really good for environments where you're trying to decentralize and you're trying to eliminate the need for trust. But I think in a lot of real world applications, people are willing to sacrifice um, privacy and other properties in exchange for speed and convenience. You know, if I buy a book online, I don't want to wait three months for that book to show up because it takes a long time for the, the transaction to clear. I'm perfectly willing to give away my privacy in exchange for ensuring that that book is, is delivered to me in a very, you know, efficient and expeditious manner. So staying on that blockchain discussion, though, there's always been this, you know, I feel like oftentimes, as usual, there's this, you know, emerging tech, let's talk about it, let's start implementing it. But there are, do you really think that people are thinking about the security implications associated with them? Like, I feel like security always ends up as this last kind of like, topic or this last thing that they should realize um, that that they need to think about? Or do you know, or do you think that people are, are thinking about that? Do you think that blockchain is secure enough? I mean, I know that you mentioned the infrastructure, which I absolutely love. I think it's people forget about that foundation, but inherently, are we there yet? Or do we need a little bit more time? Yeah, I definitely think we need we need a bit more time because I think what what's happened is that this technology is is fairly new. Um, you know, even, even though I guess two thousand eight was when when Bitcoin was first introduced to the world, uh, but when you think about it, for example, blockchain, you know, especially if you look at things like like the public blockchain or blockchains that are meant for for public consumption, part of the security of that blockchain has been predicated on on um, on this idea of being able to distribute a consensus in a reliable way. Now, when you look at Bitcoin specifically, which is the sort of killer app for blockchain, um, look, it's possible if I wanted to try to mess with the Bitcoin system, I could certainly do it. I mean, it, it's not difficult uh, for someone who's maybe efficiently resourced and who's uh, uh, motivated enough to really wreak havoc on Bitcoin. But that same effort that could be used to wreak havoc on Bitcoin could also be taken and used to mine Bitcoin and you can make more money that way. And so for Bitcoin, there's sort of an economic incentive to play by the rules, so to speak. Um, whereas if you start to take blockchain and remove it from the Bitcoin context and try to apply it to other settings, and you're not careful about those assumptions, you may create a scenario where all of a sudden the economic incentives are for someone to break the system and, and cause more damage. And so that, I think, is what, what really worries me. I think there are a lot of folks out there who look at blockchain, who think of it as a distributed ledger, but who take that abstraction too literally. It's not a true distributed ledger. It, it's, it's really a technology that gives you some of the properties that you might expect it in, in a digital analog of a ledger that's distributed, but there are some subtle differences and subtle distinctions. And I think if we don't appreciate those distinctions, much like we talked about with AI, if you don't understand how the black box works, there's a huge opportunity to, to misuse that black box and to cause more problems. Yeah. So on that note, to kind of like take us, just pivot a little bit more um, on the security kind of like topic and these black boxes, another huge kind of conversation that always seems to come up with regard to technology is IoT. And I also, you know, again, putting my security cap on, feel that people aren't really thinking this all the way through uh, from the aspect. Are there, like, what are your thoughts um, on security and IoT? And what are some of the things that, that organizations need to be thinking about as they're implementing IoT in their, in their business? Right. So I think with IoT, it's, it's some of the same fundamental security considerations continue to apply, but I think they tend to now apply at a much grander and much more you know, extensive scale than in the past. Uh, when you look at IoT devices, there's so many of them, they're going to be generating lots of data. So for, first of all, just being able to get visibility into what's happening um, inside or across all these devices, to me, is, is going to be one of the most uh, crucial things to do as you think about trying to protect and, and create a security strategy around IoT. 
Um, the second aspect, uh, you know, when you go a step beyond that is, is as you start to gather all this data, how do you start to reason about it intelligently? How do you develop the analytics and the capabilities to, to separate the noise from the actual signal? And there, I think there's a nice intersection between AI techniques and what's happening in the IoT realm. A lot of IoT devices today can be used to generate interesting data. We can do great things with that data if we can make meaningful inferences from that data. And being able to glean those insights is a problem that's well-suited for AI techniques. So I, I think I see you know, a lot of promise, but I think that the challenge is going to be that uh, we've got to find better ways of being able to take that data and prioritize it intelligently. So if I had to take a step kind of forward into the security context, you know, I tell people, number one, really focus on, on being able to, first of all, uh, take a risk-driven view. So in other words, if you see all these events being generated, figure out the ones that have the biggest potential impact to your organization financially or that can cause the biggest loss. And make sure that that data is prioritized if you have to examine it more carefully. Because if you have a security operations center and they're seeing you know, thousands of events coming in from all these IoT devices, uh, but you have no way of knowing which events are important, then you know, good luck trying to stop something bad from happening in your environment. So really focus on that prioritization. Look for ways to take all these different events and collate them in intelligent ways. Uh, look for ways to automate uh, your security playbooks. So for example, if something bad were to happen, I think nine times out of 10, when something bad happens, we can automate the response. We don't necessarily need a human to be involved in every aspect of it, which is not to say that we want to eliminate humans from the loop. What I really want to do is I want to figure out how can I take those sort of easy, those more mundane tasks and leverage technology to replicate and automate those tasks and enable your smart analysts and, and, and your, your highly paid and, and highly skilled analysts to do the kind of work that you really need them to do, which is more advanced threat hunting, being able to actually go in and, and do some deeper investigations and, and really bring pieces together. We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal. In a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Pew, pew. So what year will Skynet go online? <laughs> you were the one who brought them up too. So, <laughs> well, you can't have any AI, AI conversation without saying Skynet. I know, right? right? It's so funny. Uh, Twenty one oh five. I love it when people I, actually I give years. That's the long play. That's way out there. I like I um, you've mentioned uh, one of the books or a book um, on the podcast. So I was just curious, what was the last great book that you have read? Um, I just finished a book uh, called uh, by Carlo Rovelli called um, The Order of Time, which is uh, so Carlo Rovelli is this, this uh, theoretical physicist who um, also is a phenomenal writer as well. And he wrote a book called uh, Seven Brief Lessons in Physics that was a New York Times bestseller a number of years ago. And he wrote his most recent book is on how time works and, and really looking at it from a physicist's point of view. Uh, but it totally shifts your perspective on what time means. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we, you know, kind of it's something that's so important to us and we use the word time all the time and we think about how much time we spend and how much time we waste and so on and so forth. But to look at it from a completely different lens is definitely uh, an eye-opening experience. And I literally just finished that book uh, a few days ago. Oh, that's nice. I also, I owe you the Everybody Lies book too, so. Oh, that, yeah, yeah, fantastic. Uh, and the next question, so what genre of music are you currently rocking to? Um, you know, I talk to pretty much everything. I mean, I have to admit that I, I have an affinity for 80s music because that's, you know, what I grew up on. Uh, and, and that never uh, goes away. But I think uh, you know, that would be love maybe you. my primary. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, you know, what's funny, I, I gave a talk a few days ago and um, I didn't know this was going to happen, but they played walk-on music to my talk. Ooh. And and uh, the walk-on music they played was Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. 
And uh, it's funny because as soon as like, I didn't know that was going to happen, but then I started at the beginning of my presentation giving like a bit of a history of that song. And um, it was funny because nobody expected me to be able to do that, given that, you know, I'm this very technical math yeah. type. Uh, but I tied it to the rest of my presentation on innovation. I thought that was pretty funny. So it. It, that's my, my hallmark of being an 80s kid. So that's that's a really good rapid fire question. I think like we, um, I'm wearing my Boston Red Sox hat today, and there's always, um, you know, like a walk on song, right? When yeah, they go up to, your, what would be your walk on song? Yeah, so it would be like, <laughs> what would be your walk on song? I would love that because I we that was always a debate that we had of like, what's your song? Because um, it changes over time, which is pretty cool. Um, great, sweet child of mine, I remember that. So, what piece of technology is currently making life worse for you? Worse? Oh man. That's a tough one. Video conferencing. It's <laughs> <laughs> the second time I've gotten that. that is and, 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 I, and I say it jokingly because when you talk about like all these crazy AI applications and someone says, you know, what would you want to build in the future? I'm like, how about video conferencing that works the first time you use it? That would be like pretty awesome yeah. <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> we started rolling on a new one. I'll have to test it with you. But uh, that's, that's so funny. It's the second time. And there was actually interesting. There was um, a study, and I don't remember. It's not off the top of my head. I think that IBM actually did some testing with video conferencing and doing artificial intelligence. And that the minute that someone's face popped up on the screen is when the malware would become unpacked. Um, so it was very difficult to um, find it, but it was an interesting way of using that teleconference kind of tool um, to get that malware going. But we'll provide more yeah. notes on that. Now, now, having said that, by the way, I love using video conferencing in general. <laughs> like all my team meetings use it and, and right. we do it on purpose. So we, 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 I feel we get better interaction. I say it more from the perspective of spending 15 minutes of every meeting trying to debug uh, video conferencing is, is never fun. Yeah, maybe, maybe the real the real technology is a printer. Like if, if I can get a printer to work reliably, where right? I can just print something and it actually prints, that would be pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, that's that's what I would love to build. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, so, what is your biggest money pit right now? My biggest money pit. Wow. Um, I got kids, so I'd say that's probably it. <laughs> <laughs> they are a giant, giant sucking sound in your wallet. They're so delightful. They're expensive. But, but, they, but they're worth it. I mean, every, every penny. But I, I think, like, I literally, you know, when I spend stuff on myself, it, it's, it's usually, like, my, my big indulgence is, like, buying a new coffee mug. And that's, you know, like that, that, is, that is. But I, I look at everything else as for them. So, you know, I, I'd say it's the best investment I make, but it's also probably where a lot of the money spent. It's <laughs> so funny. Um, are you going anywhere interesting soon? Actually, yeah, we're, we're planning to do uh, a trip to. Well, we're gonna. It's a multi-part trip. We're gonna go to Finland um, to see Santa Claus's house, um, <sighs> which is exciting. There's that, that you know, suck. You know that money pit right there, right? The kids. That's right. A great example. But you know, I think I've got a limited window where I can do that. Where the kids are, you know, yes. still young enough where they believe in Santa Claus. But I don't know. I had a, my my window is expiring very fast on that, so we have to do that pretty quickly. Santa Claus is real, bro. Don't ruin this for me. Yeah, and then we're planning. Uh, well, the cool thing with Finland, though, is it turns out it's, it's actually pretty near to Moscow. Uh, and so we're going to plan to take a train over to Moscow, which, which uh, I've always wanted to go to Russia. Actually, I, yeah. I was a, a Russian minor in college, which is kind of a weird of course you were. Uh, fact about me. So, yeah, it's just a totally, a completely random story how that happened. But uh, uh, so as a result, I, but I've never had a chance to go to Russia. So I, I'm looking forward to being able to do that at some point. Yeah, I would love to go there. Have you been there, Corey? I've not. Nope. Have not yeah. been to Russia. I got invited last year to speak at a uh, at a big data conference in St. Petersburg, and the corporate travel people said that I was not allowed to travel to that city at that time. Yeah. <laughs> You're at <laughs> risk. You're guy. high risk. Yeah. yeah big, tall, bearded guy stick out a little bit everywhere. <laughs> and then last question. So what yeah, show... I can, I can use my bad Russian accent. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's true. That certainly helps you. 
Um, and last question, what show are you binging on right now? What show am I binging on right now? Um, you know, it's funny. I, I literally started on the plane ride over here last night because I was, I was in D.C. Um, and there's a new National Geographic show on Picasso. It's, oh, it's yes. Sort of like a, they did one on Einstein, which is pretty amazing. And so I literally just started. I watched the first few episodes of that. Um, but the good thing is that I can't really binge on that from home because I don't, I don't get the show without like some loops to get to a regular TV. But it's, it's a great plain binging show. So I figured that's my, my plain binge time that I can always watch Picasso. And it's, 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 right now it's a pretty phenomenal show. You have Antonio Banderas is playing yeah, uh, say, Pablo Picasso and it, it's uh, pretty, pretty cool. I'm not sure that that's how Picasso acted in real life, but certainly I'll, I'll, I'll go with it. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> it's the joy of Hollywood. Well, thank you so much for your time, Zuli. It's been really great. I love um, talking about all these like great topics and obviously talking about security and how it can apply to everything. So thank you for your time and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard podcast. The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. Check him out on iTunes or Spotify. It would also be pretty cool if you reviewed us in your favorite podcast app. It really does help. Thanks for listening.